thank you for downloading DVL's Beyond the Product podcast. This podcast was originally released as a live webinar and has since been edited to fit this format. To view the original webinar and reference PowerPoint slides, please visit dvlnet.com slash resources slash webinars. Have a question or want to submit feedback? Please email us at marketing at dvlnet.com. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. Welcome to today's DVL Beyond the Product Power Hour, um, how battery technologies are changing critical infrastructure. We're excited to uh, talk to everyone today. Um, and But before we get going, um, we're going to go through just a few housekeeping items, a couple of introductions. Got a gentleman much smarter on this topic than myself on the line with us. Sean Delaney here. Sean, how are you, sir? I'm doing great. How about you, Robert? Not too bad, not too bad. Um, now, you have been at DDL for a long time, and, um, you know, it's a background that, that spans for almost uh, over a couple of decades, if I'm not mistaken, almost three. And you've probably seen a lot um, of kind of experience and how we've grown over the years. You know, we are celebrating our 35th uh, anniversary this year. We started out up in Philadelphia area where Sean is located, and we've grown to now five locations across the country. Um, we've done that really through the ability to thread expertise and experience in the world of critical infrastructure um, and, and power management and cooling these, this very you know, emerging, um, continually emerging big part of our lives. And throughout you know, the three years, plus, 30 years plus, um, you know, we've built this environment on our culture and the trustworthiness with, with guys like Sean bringing in that engineering, that expertise, and, and that experience to the table. Uh, you know, we do talk about it going beyond the product, but that's certainly where we do start. Um, you know, we focus on uninterruptible power, thermal and chiller systems, power distribution, power controls, uh, busway, you know, power distribution world, as well as a whole suite of monitoring solutions, which, uh, you know, some may even come up in today's conversation with some things that are going on and even, you know, down to the battery level. So, but while we do, you know, kind of focus in the world of the products, we have some wonderful representations from Vertiv and Starline across all of our territories. We also work with Generac and Russ Electric in a few select territories. Um, so really, if you have any of those power needs outside of just battery questions, and this is like we can certainly be your go-to uh, provider. Um, and the, outside of just the expertise that we have, we have turnkey solutions. We do complete project management uh, from small to large and really walk you through that and help guide you. Um, in a myriad of ways, as well as normal maintenance and emergency services for, for really your power, HVAC, and generator needs. So uh, if you have any questions, we'd love to follow up with you more uh, in that. But for now, let's get back to, you know, while we're here, battery technology. Sean, um, as I mentioned, you've been in this world for close to 30 years, I'm mistaken, but not with DVL the entire time. Yeah, yeah, I've been, uh, been in power systems for 28 years. And uh, with DVL, 14, so about half that, half my career. And, um, yeah, I started out working in military switchgear. So, uh, you know, we, we were building um, switchgear up in north, northeast Philadelphia for um, military applications, specifically on combatant ships. So, uh, you know, did a lot uh, early on, um, just working with military specs and, uh, and all the uh, – all the requirements and and uh, some some very interesting things that that our designs required um, being a supporter to the the, uh, the military uh, you know the military base um, so uh, lots of neat testing requirements lots of manufacturing requirements for being vertically integrated and 
it was just a, a very neat experience and a great place to start my career. I, I learned uh, a lot about critical applications for sure. I can imagine. So especially, uh, and, and, and I can imagine the importance to detail in those applications as well. Sure. Yeah. A lot of detail. Um, so it was a, it was a, a great learning experience, great place to start. Um, you know, a lot of our guys at BVL uh, on the engineering side too, are uh, you know, we're actually, you know, military engineers, uh, you know, yeah. on board the ships um, on the electrical side. So I was, uh, I was on the, the commercial side of things, but, uh, but got to, to work with a lot of folks like them. And, and then you I've even been, got close enough to work with some of the, uh, on the nuclear side too, if I'm not mistaken. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. We dealt with, um, with uh, the systems that supported the nuclear uh, propulsion systems for carriers um, for the aircraft carriers. So, yeah, and, and some of the other ships uh, as follow-ons to that. But, yeah, it was, a, it was a lot of fun. And, you know, it was a great place to start out in your 20s. I was doing a lot of traveling, and it was fun. But uh, I've been at DBL about 14 years and uh, involved in data centers probably about 20, uh, a little over oh, wow. 20 years. So um, I worked for, you know, a couple different manufacturers in the business. And, you know, my evolution at DBL has just been over the course of time, you know, from more of a territory-based um, uh, responsibility to a large, you know, kind of a large accounts approach um, and supporting a lot of our consulting engineers. Okay. And so working with consulting engineers, working with some of our larger accounts, you've got a lot. We talk about that expertise and experience, um, kind of what's helped define us going beyond the product. And you've got kind of a lot of that. Um, what did you kind of notice as you were transitioning from that commercial military side and into the world of DBL and data centers even before that? Um, and, and, and the world of battery powers and UPSs and kind of what was the landscape like at that time? So when I started out, you know, it was a, it was a lot of um, variables related to, you know, for the most part, you know, I mean, energy storage has a lot of different forms, um, but you know, for the for the vast majority of applications, you know, data centers and UPS systems were utilizing lead acid technology, battery technology, and it was really a um, an evolution from, you know, large rack based um, wet cell applications um and you know seeing a, a trend towards um you know typically in the beginning it was all separated any, any large systems were most more often than not wet cell you know um flooded battery applications and for the vast majority of the small systems it was uh, valve regulated batteries and uh, sealed batteries um and over the course of time you know the discussions were still around which which type of of lead acid form factor and uh, and technology you know was going to be deployed. So we started to see a lot of larger systems move towards um, sealed batteries. Uh, you know which had a, a shorter a shorter life cycle, um, but uh, but the maintenance and environmental uh, demands those types of systems were less and sometimes these systems were in leased spaces and and you didn't have um necessarily a 20-year commitment to a you know a, a wet cell room that you build with hydrogen detection and all the ventilation that came along with that um you know so early on the sealed batteries were able to be you know uh, located in in something ventilated basically to the extent of an office area 
Um, you know, so there was a there was a move and a trend to try to deploy some of those technologies for even larger systems. So, you know, various space requirements, maintenance requirements, um, just project costs, uh, but sacrificing, you know, there was the, the life cycle of the, of the product. So there were a lot of decisions about um, life cycle and, and, and replacement costs. And a lot so of, you know, that's like, kind of the questions around life cycle. What were, uh, what were maybe people seeing on average and, and kind of some of those, those lines that you mentioned? Yeah, so with wet cells and, and you know the flooded product, yeah, you, know, you would typically see a twelve to fifteen year life cycle. Um, you know, there there's a difference in this industry between what's called what's the actual life in a in a UPS system and what's what they call design life. Um, so for a flooded battery which carried a design life um, label of twenty years, you typically got between twelve and fifteen years out of it in a in a UPS application just because of the demands. And you know some of the some of the u- unique um, demands on a battery in that type of application. On the fl- on the sealed battery side, uh, typically three to five years. You know, it's it's really more like you know four to four to five. Um, you know, three in the small rack mount UPS applications. You know, and closer to five in in the larger um, sealed battery applications. So you know, in, in that case. Uh, that design life was 10 years, um, but whenever a battery manufacturer in the lead acid side talks about design life, it's typically under ideal conditions, uh, under under continual float uh, float operation. So um, yeah, so the obviously parts of the, the details that were that were discussed at the time were okay to get the same amount of runtime. Um, I I'm utilizing a lot less space to go with sealed batteries. Um, I don't have the environmental requirements and demands that that sealed batteries uh, that or that wet cells require, but I've got to replace these batteries three times before I've got to really replace my wet cells, you know, two to three times. So, um, so there were a lot of total cost of ownership discussions going on and, and real discussions about business and, and how long that system was going to be adequate or in that location um, over time. Oh, wow. I mean, that's, I mean, I mean that's a that's a whole whirlwind of considerations, even you know, without it throwing in new technologies to start to consider. Correct, correct. Yeah, it was it was all you know, and and that technology had been around for a long time. Yeah. Um, um, and you know, you know kind of, so as we to to your to that point, right? Well, there's been a lot of things to consider, you know, going way back. Uh, on top of that, we've got now some you know new things like lithium ion, which we're going to dive into here in just a little bit. You know, lithium ion is not a new technology; it's been around. It was developed, I think, in the early 70s, and it was introduced yeah. in consumer electronics by Sony in the early 90s. I think so in a camcorder, right? I think that was yeah, one of the first things. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It was a camcorder <laughs> application. It was really a, you know, a, a compactness and, uh, and, and, and battery life in, in the same footprint. Um, you know, and that's where some of the some of the um, advantages come. But it's it's very unique. It's a very it's interesting to me that maintenance um, is is top of the list, and um, that's one of the things that is is very interesting about lithium ion is maintenance requirements are so much less intensive uh, for something that has a 15 year life at your site. Um, you know the the there's not a whole lot to to work on with these batteries. Um, you know we've got a 
a battery management system that's in place constantly. So um, as opposed to battery, mo battery monitoring, um, battery management is, is kind of a new, a new approach uh, that people are getting used to with lithium ion um, from you know, moving over from lead acid. Uh, but the byproduct of that is that you're, you're, you're charging and, and all the elements of the battery are constantly being monitored and, and, and maintained through algorithms through the controls. Every jar in the lithium iron lithium ion array for a UPS system has its own onboard computer. Um, and at the rack level, um, you know, the the rack or string of batteries is controlled um, through that array and maintained to optimum, you know, optimum parameters for the for the for the technology, for the chemistry that's that's in the battery. So, you know, what we typically do with lead acid is, um, you know, there's a charger that applies a voltage, but the battery is, is kind of a, for lack of a better term, a, a, a dumb uh, piece of, of chemistry that's hanging off the, the electrical bus there. Okay. So, you know, all of, the, all of the intelligence is kind of in the UPS as to respond to what's happening with the battery bus. Conversely, in this case, we've got a UPS system, or we've got a battery system that is active, and it's being controlled and uh, and managed. So, a lot of those things we do to come in and check, um, and to, you know, four times a year, twelve times a year, depending on what your what your maintenance program is for lead acid. A lot of that is actually handled through the management system, and you know, brought to brought to alert status when that's you know when when attention is needed. So typically, on the maintenance side, the maintenance is really on the on the uh, software and control side. It's it's a review of how the management system is is managing the the cells, and also at the same time a review of how the cells are responding. But it's, this is um, this is kind of this is kind of amazing, Sean. I got to be honest. I, I haven't really thought about it in this context before, and this is in, in no way kind of a a sell a, a hard sell one way or the other. But the, just the, the terminology and the approach of looking at kind of the lead cell as kind of the dumb aspect and it's just a, you know, a true piece of a quote unquote, you know, hardware that's there. And, and this additional intelligence and ease of management that you're getting on the lithium ion side is pretty staggering to some degree. Yeah, it's a it's and it's it took a, it takes a lot for, um, you know, someone who's used to the other technologies to realize that there are. There's a different set of challenges. It's not. It's just not the same challenges anymore. So right, all of our, right. all of our discussions were in lead acid terms for years and years. Um, but uh, you know, as as this besides the you know the cost or the uh, weight and space savings um, and power density savings, which are you know basically part and parcel of that. Um, you know, the, the the drawback used to be you know the the expense of a lithium ion. Uh, Array um, in order to get all these benefits. Um, okay, you say used to be. Yeah, so so reduced maintenance and, and reduced uh, size um, was was part of the total cost of ownership challenge. Um, and comparison when when these lithium ion batteries started to be used in UPS systems about nine ten years ago, um, that that challenge was that the batteries themselves were you know, on a factor of three to four times the cost of valve regulated sealed batteries. Wow. Um, so at the time, you know, a lot of those factors came into play. They were lasting three times as long, um, you know, or, or at least that, that was what the design, you know, 
capabilities and, and accelerated testing uh, bore out. But the, um, you know, the challenge was it was, it was a high cost uh, item. Um, but as those years have passed and, you know, these things, uh, you know, the, the adaptation of lithium ion technology in UPS applications has ramped up significantly in, in the past five years. At the same time, um, hybrid, you know, hybrid and electric car technology has really driven lithium ion um, infrastructure and manufacturing capabilities uh, and volume to the point where, you know, the, they're very comparable. They're probably, they're not, uh, you know, they're between probably 20 and 50% more costly than an equivalent sealed string. Um, which over the course of the UPS system and an entire, you know, UPS purchase, uh, initially, um, you know, that, that makes it maybe a 10 to 15% adder to the, to the, uh, cost of the system. And, oh, wow. um, you know, so it's, so it's really, um, it's almost becoming an, a no brainer on the, on the weight and maintenance and cost side now. Um, you know, but, you know, they're some of the challenges more recently have been, you know, kind of more on the, uh, on the regulatory side. Yeah. And, and, and to some degree, right. And so first off, let's, let's just say that, you know, the lithium ion came out, it, it got to a point where like just this kind of really amazing technology offering a reduction in size and weight reduction in like maintenance cost, maintenance demand. Um, but it had this high cost, but thanks to the world of like, you know, Tesla and, and other, you know, electric cars, they've been driving down, you know, through their innovation, driving down costs. And we're now, you know, it's, it's maybe not the exact same, but much more comparable than we were. So all of a sudden mm -hmm. we've now got this technology that's kind of sort of winning on size, kind of sort of winning on main, well, definitely winning on maintenance and kind of sort of winning on cost. There's kind of an elephant in the room, I think, if I'm not mistaken, Sean, and it's this perception that it's there's, you know, you mentioned the fire codes, but there's also a perception that there's just a danger behind lithium ion, I think. Is that valid or have we kind of moved beyond that, too? Sure. Well, well, there's, again, perception and, and there's reality to any of these technologies, um, you know, whether it's lead acid or, or lithium ion, there's always a risk with um just the nature of batteries and their, you know, the, the thermal side of things. Um, in any battery array, there's there's risk of of um, what's called thermal runaway, where you know a battery gets to a point where um, the, you know, the heating uh, related to it's it's either charging or discharging, depending on the technology um, and the environment, and uh, and and maybe you know a failure in the system um, can cause you know, we'll just, we'll just call it a fire. I mean, it's, you know, there's, there's mm -hmm. definitely cases where uh, batteries, no matter what technology have, uh, have caught fire because of, of failures in the, in the, in the chemistry, in the, in the actual cell. And that's um, the reason that would like do a quick pitch, right? Like, but that's the reason that when like with inverted smart rows and the like, you know, there's fire suppression that's kind of automatically built into some of these things. Sure, and I'll get into a little bit more about suppression, you know, on on that side of things too, because there are some some different approaches for lithium ion. Um, but yeah, I mean, some of the perceptions came from, um, and some of the the more, you know, uh, interesting news stories, you know, about lithium ion came from some of the consumer electronics. There has there have been some larger scale um, events, uh, specifically with some. 
um, grid connected batteries that were supporting uh, utility applications. But the consumer electronics, I think, created the original fear, and that was the original discussion uh, when I started talking to engineers about lithium ion um, was the, you know, the, the hoverboards and, and the phones, the cell phones um, and their failure modes. And right. one thing to keep in mind about lithium ion is there are probably seven or eight different chemistries um, that are utilized. When we talk about lithium ion, it's not monolithic. There's, there are uh, several oh, different approaches. Okay. So you say lithium ion, that doesn't say that that's not a one-to-one ratio of what you might be talking about. Correct. Correct. And, and what happens with consumer electronics is that the competitive nature of that business drives, um, you know, all those manufacturers to do basically three things. They're, they're trying to drive um, maximum runtime in the smallest space available with the least costly management least cost. of the battery. Yeah, least cost is really where I'm, I'm guessing that the, 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 the fire challenges might pop up. Yeah, so, so, you know, when you're trying to make all those things work together, an aggressive, um, kind of high density technology wins. And um, in some of those applications, that's, that was really the nature of the, the, the difficulty there. When we're talking about UPSs, we're in controlled spaces, we have a lot more space than, than a, a phone has in your pocket. And, you know, you might be at a hundred degree, uh, you know, stadium watching a baseball game um, and then move to an air conditioned area um, where, you know, when, when you're talking about a UPS system, those, those, you know, environments are controlled. So consumer electronics had, had, you know, kind of led the way for lithium ion. Um, but, you know, as some of those parameters started to bump up against each other, um, there were some, some failures that were pretty notable, but over the course of time, I mean, you know, this technology has been deployed since the early 90s. The events in total were, were somewhat, you know, small in number, but they were, um, you know, they were, they were considerably, um, you know, unfortunate and, and just got a lot of press. So, yeah. you know, those, those same concerns, um, you know, spilled over into lithium ion. So that's kind of where that the early discussions around it kind of had to battle that perception. Um, and, you know, and there are a lot of safeguards that are developing um, in the UPS side of things, and that's moving into some of the regulatory uh, areas like you and I had discussed earlier. Well, can you share maybe some of what kind of what those regulatory areas are kind of pointing to? Sure. So um, a lot of the fire codes are evolving. Um, and, you know, it's hard to tell. Um, you know, the, a lot of this has come from the fact that, um you know some of those some of those discussions around uh, fires and um, and whatnot, and so there are prescriptive uh, spacing requirements now that the uh, the latest fire codes IFC 2018 uh, NFPA 2018 and the next generation NFPA 855 <clears throat> they've got a prescript prescriptive requirement you know that kind of matches up pretty well with a battery string. Um, so you have a lithium ion battery string about the size of what you would use for a UPS, you know, maybe a, you know, a 200 kW UPS. And what's happening is um, it's a, it's a limitation of fire propagation out of the cabinet. So what they, what they've done is they said, okay, in the absence of any other data or qualifications, um, there needs to be a three foot spacing cabinet to cabinet, cabinet to a wall, um, so, you know, when you look at what that does to a, 
to the you know the space savings of of a lithium ion um, cabinet or lithium ion solution, it kind of gets it right back to where you know a valve regulated you know sealed battery layout looks like, um, with the exception of it can't be against a wall. So um, there are some remedies uh, for that that space uh, challenge, um, and and as an industry we're we're working towards um, a new. Uh, qualification. It's called uh, UL nine uh, 9540 and 9540A. Um, so, you know, there are these requirements in the fire codes and there are allowances for a, uh, authorities having jurisdiction of the AHJs to accept um, test reports for fire propagation testing. Um, and it's, the test is called UL 9540A. And um, we've got uh, you know, Samsung uh, battery cabinets have, have passed that testing. Um, and, um, you know, some of the other manufacturers like Vertiv have, um, you know, homegrown applications also under testing right now. And what's, you know, what that allows an, an AHJ to do is to accept the fire propagation testing. And what that basically says is, you know, that test forces a lithium ion cabinet into thermal runaway um, forces it to catch fire and, you know, measures the propagation outside the box. And so, you know, um, Samsung has passed that testing. Um, Vertiv's initial uh, tests have, uh, have not propagated outside the cabinets. Uh, but in some cases, it requires, you know, some adjustments to cabinet design. Um, luckily enough, uh, Samsung's test required a, a uh, a revision of their cabinet and the footprint's actually smaller than the original. So oh, wow. it's actually, you know, it's actually helping. So um, not to, you know, not to, to say that this is, uh, you know, this is a hurdle that we've, we've cleared. Um, you know, it still does require education of the local uh, municipality uh, to discuss the requirements. Um, it still is, you know, within their, um, within their uh, jurisdiction or their, you know, their, their decision to accept or require the spacing. So it, it's not a um, once we once we get that testing cleared, it's it's not the final hurdle. Um, there still oh, wow. has to be a discussion and an acceptance. Um, and and some of the you know some of the prescriptions you know we talk about space. Um, there are some requirements in those fire codes as well for height and depth uh, from grade. So uh, these systems can't be deployed above 75 feet. Unless they're uh, on the top of a high-rise building, um, there are certain requirements around that. Uh, they can't be more than 30 feet below grade or really below exit, um, below an exhaust exit. So, um, you know, there are some location considerations, but, uh, you know, it's, it's an evolving uh, story. And I think, um, you know, there are some, some valid uh, reasons for concerns and, and uh, just like with any battery technology and it's, it's just making the, the industry better. Um, one of the things that has come out of that is um, some fire suppression discussions. So you know, one of the things that happens with lithium ion is um, where you have fire suppression systems in a data center that might be, um, let's say a clean agent, uh, or in some applications, you might have an electrical room that's got a you know dry chemical type the uh, extinguishing system. Um, water is actually the prescribed um, the extinguishing agent for lithium ion fires um, because it um, 
it extinguishes the initial fire, which the clean agent and dry chemicals do, but it continues to cool um, the actual components. Uh, so, you know, where clean agents can take the, you know, take the leg out of the, the fire triangle, um, reignition um, after that, uh, that agent is cleared can occur. Uh, whereas if, uh, you know, in a, in a water situation, there's actually um, heat relief for the components. So. Nice. Okay, cool. Um, and so appreciate you walking us through those, you know, those codes. Uh, I know there's a lot of variables there, a lot of different organizations that are driving it. You know, you had mentioned, you know, there's, this is not just a hard, hard, you know, kind of everything about lithium ion is the best thing since sliced bread. There's, there's certainly challenges there. Maybe you can kind of get into to some of those, but um, wanted to say, William has reached out and want to talk about recycling in regards to lead batteries, I think are about 95% recyclable. Um, whereas LI batteries, if there's any recycle options at all, uh, at least here domestically, can, are you familiar with kind of the recyclability factor in lead acid versus lithium ion? Yeah, and it's, it's a developing uh, story. Uh, absolutely, he, he's correct in, in that point. And in the recycling side of things, um, one of the interesting things that's developing is um, there are a lot of secondary uh, users that, um, one of the things with lithium ion is, you know, we, we don't want to use them in UPS applications just because of the, the, the way we've always uh, managed our, you know, end, end voltage uh, for UPS systems. Uh, we're not using them past the point where they have 80% uh, capacity. Um, it's just that, the, you know, the nature of how we need to support our power bus in a UPS application However, they, there are there is a secondary market um, that is developing that will accept these because th they're more than happy with a lithium ion battery that has, you know, 80% capacity of its original manufacturer. So um, there's there are some industries growing around that, uh, but it is it is not you know it's not the lead, you know, the lead remanufacturing uh, lead recycling industry that you know it's not on that scale. It hasn't, uh, you know, it hasn't blossomed to that level yet. Um, sure. But, uh, but you know, it's it, the first, uh, the first installations, you know, we'll start to see, um, you know, decommissioning probably in the next. I mean, there were some prototypes that were very early. It's very few, but you know, we probably got, uh, you know, five to ten years before we really start to see large numbers of, of. Um, one, that's what I was about to ask is obviously there's been faulty, you know, instances and whatnot, but the, 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 the swell that I would assume that is building for batteries that are going to need to recycle um, or, the, or the need for the recycling, it's, it's still yet to really kind of come down on is it, or is, or is that kind of what you're meaning? Yeah, yeah. So, the, I mean, the, the burgeoning need for it um, won't support an infrastructure at this point, but, there, right. you know, that, that is... Uh, you know that is going that is going to develop, and and there are promising trends on that side of things. Gonna, I guess hopefully that the cost will be able to be kept down would be my my kind of thought. Right, any kind of new technology or new development to support technology, there's always you know those initial costs, and and hopefully that won't sway people away from trying to figure that that riddle out. Well, yeah, and you know, and you look at the lead industry. Um, you know, there are secondary lead products that 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 get reused in batteries, so it actually drives. The industry costs down because there are options, um, you know, in secondary markets. So that you know, we, we should we you know we expect to see the same trend on the lithium-ion side. But right. I'm not an expert on the recycling side of this. But you know, those are those are some um, some good uh, some good trends that I've heard about. So 
Awesome. Are there any other, you know, we've talked about costs going down. We just talked about recyclability kind of being an issue in the near future. Um, are there any other cons on that pros and cons list that kind of really stand out uh, as far as lithium ion goes? Sure. I mean, there's, there are, you know, a few things that, that come to mind. Um, you know, one of them is it's, it's a different infrastructure and, um, you know, it requires some, some additional planning for uh, installation. Um, you know, some of the things that, and it depends on where you are. Um, you know, these, these regulatory requirements, um, they don't necessarily take the space, uh, you know, advantage um, away because it, it's equal. You know, once you, once you apply those, those, that spacing requirements, it's about the same as a, is about kind of regulated a, kind of an equal playing field of sorts. Yeah, yeah, but um, but definitely some of the regulatory side of things. Uh, you know, in yeah, you know, we're starting to see engineers in order to kind of take further steps, um, install you know gas detection systems because that's the first indicator that we've got a thermal runaway event starting, and it's a preventive thing. So um, that typically ends up getting tied into a building management system that's going to run an exhaust fan for the for the space. Um, you know, and alarm out that there's a, you know, there's the, the early stages of a, of an event occurring. Um, so there's some infrastructure challenges. Um, those computers that are on board in the cabinets, you know, the challenge moving from a, what we'll call a dumb lead acid cabinet to a, to a, uh, a smart lithium ion cabinet is you've now got to think about supporting those, those, um, onboard computers and, and redundant power to those and, you know, making sure those are tied to the UPS. So it's a kind of a self-supporting control system, just like in any UPS, but it extends out now to the cabinets. Um, so there's some existing control and interlock wiring that that's needed. Um, you know, we, uh, you know, we, because of the, um, the, le- the, the challenges are also perception and, and, and acceptance of the technology. Um, you know, and, and, you know, the lead acid business uh, wants, wants to uh, stay in business as well. So um, I'm sure, you know, there's, there's going to be a lot of challenge um, to, uh, you know, as lithium becomes more and more accepted, um, you know, there's, there's definitely going to be some, some resistance and, and uh, some challenges just from a competitive nature. So, uh, you know, one of the things is it's very difficult to get these, um, these down to the short run times that we're starting to starting to see allowed or, you know, permitted by different lead acid technologies. So, you know, pe- people are, are starting to realize that owners that they don't necessarily need five, 10 minutes of runtime for a 750 KW UPS. They, you know, we, we've got applications that have run for years with rotary systems and, you know, those are 20, 30 second solutions. So we're starting to see some lead acid technologies emerge like pure lead that are allowing sub one minute run times. Um, you can't really What's get there. Uh, what are the applications in something like that, Sean? Because, I mean, obviously, you know, we think about, you know, I'm sure we have people over provisioning power all the time. And we'll talk about and, and just, to, you know, kind of I think up next, we'll talk a little bit about how much, you know, kind of how I define that equation. But what are the applications that are just as minimal as a sub one time runtime, one minute runtime? So, you know, where we're where I'm seeing that I haven't seen an entire data center deployed that way, you know, since since we've you know, since there have been full rotary uh systems, you know, systems from from rotary manufacturers 
Um, and some of those had integrated generation so that they, you know, it was all part of one system. Uh, so the diesel generator was tied in with a, what's called a flywheel to give you temporary runtime. Um, but again, the runtime, the transition to a generator start, you know, was typically giving you 20, 30 seconds to work with. Um, where I've seen things happen um, and, and PureLed, you know, kind of fits into this equation is in a data center, you've got a, typically an A and a B power bus, um, you know, part of a 2N power structure that might be a, a tier three or tier four design build out. And what we're starting to see um, and with at least some of my, you know, my enterprise customers that used to want a full 15 minutes at full load, both sides. So one side is down and under maintenance. The other side can run for 15 minutes in case we have multiple generator start issues or paralleling issues or what have you. Okay. Um, where I've started to see is maybe an A bus that looks like that, but a B bus that has, you know, a shorter run time, whether that be a rotary system or a pure lead battery system. Um, that's kind of where, you know, this is starting because generators are tested. Um, they run tests continually. They're maintained at least four times a year. Mm -hmm. um, you know, typically 10 seconds start is, is the longest you'd really be looking at for a single generator and a little bit more time to bring parallel systems on. So it's really the demand and the confidence that, you know, data center operators and managers are putting in the generator, which makes sense, uh, based on what you're talking about from a maintenance schedule, putting their confidence in that and hopefully kind of getting a lower investment on the in, inside supporting supplemental power, I would assume, and, then, and it, as, it, as well as other benefits as well. But, you know, I think that would be, I would guess, one hope. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and the, other, the other side of that, too, is um, it's always a discussion of how your system is going to grow and function. So, you know, when you look at redundancy and tier four, two end solutions, both sides are, you know, under normal conditions, only going to run 40% loaded um, at your full build out, you know, your full design, um, on, you know, without a side, without a failure. So, you know, without stacking up multiple failures, um, you know, your, your one minute solution on your B side might be three to four minutes um, at 40% loaded. So it really kind of goes oh, wow. back to, you know, realistically looking at what your failure modes are, um, you know, doing trade-offs for cost, maintenance. I mean, a, a single, you know, a pure lead one minute solution on valve regulated is a lot fewer cabinets than, you know, doing a, uh, a standard valve regulated uh, 15 minute solution. Um, how can how can the, how can the customer and obviously leveraging DVL expertise and experiences it would be a, a wonderful place to start. But you know, taking a step back, how can they how can our you know the audience members and and our customers how do they think about really kind of starting that equation about how much runtime, how much really supplemental power do I need? So it, it typically you know is load driven, um, but a lot of times the numbers that we're getting from. Um, <laughs> So, so I'll just kind of go the evolution of a power requirement. Um, there, there's, there's realistic, you know, end of the day, you know, what you end up supporting, and then there's all of the design, design and planning requirements that go into it. You know, when an IT uh, professional starts to look at his requirements for his for his server loads um, at the rack level. Um, a lot of times that starts with a nameplate requirement on the server. Um, 
you know, the, the server chassis or the server itself, whether it's a single server or, you know, a blade chassis or, or something similar. So when they look at nameplate, you know, there's a, there's a factor that, you know, that, that gets applied there. And, you know, it's, there are virtualization uh, trends that have started to drive nameplate usage up higher. Um, so it really has to be, you know, be a discussion of, of kind of history and, um, you know, realistic usage that, I, that I, you know, I, I've got the benefit of working with some large clients who have multiple data centers so they can kind of say, hey, the last time I built a one megawatt data center, it never got past 300 kW. Um, so I kind of know how that equation ends up landing in my lap um, when it comes through, you know, the IT person's uh, redundancy requirements, mm -hmm. um, their virtualization, then the consulting engineer puts a factor on that. Um, and then the manufacturer says, well, and I kind of want to be conservative here. So, you know, I'm putting kind of a factor on that. Um, and then everybody says, well, I don't want to run my equipment at anywhere beyond 80%. So all of those, you know, design variables stack up. So, um, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a discussion with multiple professionals saying what's realistic, what do we really think we're going to end up with? And should we look at evolving and growing in a modular fashion? Um, into, you know, build maybe the, the least expensive level of infrastructure that we can so that we can build our components into it. Um, but maybe, you know, if we think we're going to be a, you know, a three megawatt data center, we'll make sure our switch gear size that way. Anything that can't change or can't be modular size right. that way. And then modular, modularize, you know, the, the, the UPS modules, the generators, um, and and, and while well, switch gear is pretty static, right? I mean, that's a that's a very significant investment, and and you know whether you're investing or refreshing, whatever the case is. But I mean, the but the I don't want to say the vast majority of the rest, but the other variables in the world of power are getting fairly modular with the way that technology is evolving. Fair. That's fair, and, and there are also some some other ways to get um, tier three performance. Um, you know, with with some create creative. Um, growth in your systems, um, you know, rather than going 2N, we call it kind of N plus, you know, one plus half N. Um, and, and there are some, you know, some multiple kind of a three bus configuration um, that, you know, there, there are other ways to look at cost savings from an infrastructure perspective, um, as well as, you know, going with different, different voltages, um, you know, to, to cut down on your switchgear costs. There's, there's a whole, whole host of, uh, of options. Awesome. Well, you know, I think that kind of gets us close to, to the end. Um, but Sean, I think that's about it. Um, any last thoughts uh, for folks kind of as we as we wrap up and, and then, you know, moving forward in this world of lithium ion and new technologies for these batteries? Sure. I, I just you know want to want to thank everybody for your time. And, uh, you know, through these things, I always learn from the questions. So if the questions didn't pop into your mind while we were you know, while we were having our discussion here, um, feel free to, to email them out to us. Um, you know, give us a ring at DBL. Um, I, I, I've learned, you know, a lot from the questions that have come from engineers and customers. Um, you know, it's, it's one of the things that helps me to keep learning. Um, I, I don't claim to be an expert on anything. I, I'm a constant learner. So uh, I'd love to, to get some, uh, some of your thoughts and, and ideas and things that we might uh, explore together. So 
be happy to do that. Well, you might be a constant learner, but I'd say still high level of expertise. Um, Sean, thank you as well for your time today and sitting down and kind of talking to us with us about this. Um, for those of you out there, you may have heard Sean mention a couple of things around tier three, tier four level data centers. Um, next week, we're actually having a quick turnaround for our next power hour. We're going to sit down with John Yasino, another one of our DVL engineers, and we're going to be talking about big data center enterprise power applications. And uh, one of the pieces we're going to go through is that tiering uh, aspect for enterprise data centers, uh, tier one, two, through four. Um, so that'll just be one piece. And if you, you know, uh, maybe you hear Sean talk about that and want to know a little bit more, we'd love to have you join um, and, and learn there. So, uh, and again, just remember DVL Power Hour in uh, Spotify and iTunes if you'd like to check us out on a podcast. But until next time, thank you um, everyone for your time, Sean, especially to you. And we look forward to uh, seeing you hopefully on the next DVL Power Hour. Thank you, Robert. It was, it was uh, very enjoyable. I appreciate it. Yeah, right back at you, Sean. Thanks, sir.